Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 29th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about International Women's Month and the theme Each for Equal. I'm going to share my thoughts on the theme and how we can all take action to equalise the playing field for women. The International Women's Day 2020 campaign theme is drawn from a notion of collective individualism. The thinking is that we are all parts of a whole and our individual actions, conversations, behaviours and mindsets can have an impact on our larger society. And collectively we can make change happen. Collectively, we can help to create a gender-equal world, and we can all choose to be each for equal. Now, International Women's Day is celebrated worldwide, and it's fantastic to mark this day, but how can we all create long-lasting change that can address the gender pay gap, inequity, and poor structures at work that don't support women's well-being? And personally, I think International Women's Day is still very much needed, and brings women from around the globe together through momentous projects, plans, and activities. And there are global commonalities for women in relation to life stages, trends and challenges that affect all of us who define ourselves as women. From workplace gender-based harassment, from family-based sexual harassment, the glass ceiling that I would often refer to as the concrete ceiling for global majority or black and disabled women, essentially women working for free from the 10th of November each year in the UK, if we look at median and mean pay gaps. And these are all issues that workplaces and society must address with a sense of urgency too, as it doesn't make moral business or economic sense to let this drag on any longer. Looking at the most recent stats from 2019, every employer over 250 employees has to report on their gender pay gap. In April 2019, the median hourly pay for full-time employees was 8.9% less for women than for men. The median hourly pay for part-time employees was 3.1% higher for women than for men. Both these figures exclude overtime pay. And I've used this information from the gov.uk webpages on gender pay. And I've included a link in the show notes. Now you may think, well, okay, part-time pay for women is 3.1% higher for women. But this is due to a bigger proportion of women being employed part-time. The likelihood is through the fact that women are still primary carers. And part-time workers do tend to earn less per hour than full-time workers. And the gender pay gap for all employees is considerably larger than the full-time and part-time gaps. Median pay for all employees was 17.3% less for women than for men at April 2019. There has been a downward trend in the full-time pay gap since 1997, and the overall pay gap has decreased over this period. In the meantime, the part-time pay gap has generally remained small and negative with women earning more than men, on average. This simply isn't good enough and how long is this going to go on for? We're in 2020 and yes, there might have been a downward trend, but it's only about 2% of a reduction in pay gap, which simply, as I've said, is not good enough. And I also found a report about women in the workplace over the last 40 years by the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And if you'd like to read the full report, I've included a link in the show notes. But essentially, their findings are that over the past 40 years, the UK has seen an almost continual rise in the proportion of women in employment. The employment rate among women aged 25 to 54 is up from 57% in 1975 to a record high of 78% in 2017. 
essentially an increase from 29% in 1985, when the data was available, to 44% in 2017. So it's interesting, isn't it? Despite the fact that there's so many more women in the workplace, in terms of percentages, there's still a gender pay gap. And this report states these changes are largely the result of a huge change in working patterns at particular points in the life cycle, with far more women in employment over the course of their mid to late 20s and early 30s. And this is in part because women are now cohabiting and having children later in life. The share of women living with a partner or spouse by age 25 has fallen from more than 80% for women born in the 1940s to less than 60% for women born in the 1970s. While the share of women born in 1975 who had given birth to at least one child by age 25, which correlates to 31% of women in 1975, is around half of women born in 1945. It's also because women are now much less likely to drop out of the labour market around the time they have their first child, and much more likely to stay in paid work in the years following. Whereas only 41% of women born in 1958 were still in work two years after the birth of their first child, this figure was 58% for women born in 1970, even though the employment rates of these cohorts were essentially the same, both five years before and ten years after the birth of their first child. Now, this could be attributed to higher living costs, where people can't afford to have only one working adult in a home. So this has led to a large rise in the proportion of working age mothers in paid work, up from 50% in 1975 to 72% in 2015. The rise has been particularly large among lone mothers and mothers of preschool and primary school age children. And overall, the proportion of couples with children where only one adult works has almost halved down from 47% in 1975 to 27% in 2015, and the proportion where both work has increased from 49% to 68%. And increases in maternal employment have been the largest among the partners of higher earning men. So again, that might be something you may or may not have expected. 40 years ago, mothers partnered with men in the bottom and top halves of the male earnings distributions were equally likely to be in paid work themselves, with employment rates of around 60%. And those figures are now 70 and 80% respectively. In other words, for every additional mother in employment partnered with a lower earning man, there are around two additional mothers in employment partnered with a higher earning man. So again, fascinating. And that could be around social status, how people meet each other, often people meet at work. And if people are in particular social circles where they both have high paid jobs, that can also contribute to that. But of course, it's important to say we're not just women. That is to say that it's not our only defining factor. Of course, we are black, global majority, diaspora, dual heritage, disabled, whether that's visible or invisible, cis women, trans women, single, married, in a partnership with people of the same sex, opposite sex to us, or anything in between. The likelihood is that we could have caring responsibilities for elderly and or younger dependents, or we may be child-free by choice. It could be that we have traditional or non-traditional faith and beliefs, varying political views, and different levels of financial security. So I think it's imperative to think about women from all walks of life when workplaces create initiatives, policies, and projects to improve work environments. There is always the effect of intersectionality and how all our facets and attributes combine to push us up or down in what I call the equality hierarchy. And if we link to mental ill health, women are 60% more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety or depression. Now, of course, we know that there's increased suicide for men. 
and women are more likely to go and see a doctor and speak to a doctor and get a diagnosis. However, women still tend to be the primary carers and are socialised to put others first. Sexual abuse is also more likely to affect women's mental health and lack of specific services. And, of course, there are specific biological factors like menopause, endometriosis, particular sexual health conditions, post-birth conditions, divorce and financial inequity that contributes to women's mental ill health and mental health. Now, workplaces, of course, have a part to play. And I was talking with a friend earlier and she had attended a talk around domestic violence. And she said that one of the speakers had said a lot of women come to work to hide from domestic violence, as an example. But women need to feel supported in their careers. And it may be that workplaces aren't perfect unintentionally, but sometimes it could be intentionally. Like Sheryl Sandberg's famous lean-in talk, where she mentions a firm that didn't have a women's toilet. Organisations see things from their own perspective. Unless something has affected you or the top team or the people in power, it's unlikely that a holistic view would be taken and to see things from every walk and perspective. Who is the ideal worker? As I've mentioned before, 9 to 5 doesn't really work anymore, not really for anyone if I'm honest, but the 9 to 5 was designed primarily for men in particular types of roles that had support at home, someone else looking after the children. And in a sense, that's still the way the workplace is structured. But as the famous quote from Anais Nin illustrates, we do not see things as they are, but the way we are. So it could be that organisations are really trying, or they think they're trying, but it's not happening and nothing's changing for everyone or all women across an organisation because of the way in which things are viewed from a particular perspective. An example I'd like to talk about is flexible working policies, often designed to support women at work and with younger dependents. Now, there's no doubt, even as someone who's child-free, that this is essential, benefiting individuals and the workplaces alike. It's also key to say here, it's, this is not a women's issue, but it's an issue for everyone. It's a family issue. Everyone who's chosen to have a family in a biological way, through adoption, through IVF, um, an extended family, whether you have young dependents, you might have older dependents, you might not have chosen to have older dependents. And by having good, clear policies in place that are practiced equitably and consistently throughout an organisation, this drives up productivity, loyalty and increases staff retention, which results in higher outputs, profits and reduced costs. So win-win all round. However, extensive discussion about childcare is not matched with extensive discussion about elderly care. Elderly care is often unpredictable, with no set school pick-up times, Care needs can be erratic with emergencies arising more regularly and it's also harder to tell elderly dependents what to do. Even though there's more talk of men and caring responsibilities, caring is still very much viewed as being on the women's domain. So it's easy to focus on a one-size-fits-all model. Our policy is for women in the workplace who have younger dependents. Of course, that's a key part, but the conversation needs broadening out. And as I say, it's not about being nice and fluffy. It's not about being soft. I do believe in treating people well and equitably, but maybe this isn't your driver, but it does make clear business sense and it has to be addressed with the skills shortages, lack of diversity and client and customer expectations that all organisations are facing. This will help to change things for the better and also impact positively on your bottom line. So you might be listening to this as a busy woman. And what I want to say is if you want to know more about managing your work-life balance and taking control, 
Sign up to my newsletter and you'll receive a free copy of my ebook, The Mentally Healthy Leading Manager. There's a wealth of information about how to manage your well-being and that of your team with checklists, resources and information. So what does each for equal mean in practice? Well, there are lots of things that you can do to reduce blind spots in relation to policies, practices and projects. The first thing I would say is ask what needs to change. One example I can think of that I've had a lot of conversation about recently is around menopause provision and a menopause policy. Often this is met with, well, I only have young women in my team. This isn't relevant. So that's worrying in and of itself. Yes, there is an increased likelihood of menopause relating to a particular age group, more likely over 50s. However, younger women do often have early onset menopause. So it's not about age. It's about thinking, what are the practices, provisions and criteria that we have in this organisation or don't have that would make people's life easier? And often what you find is if you create these policies and practices, they don't just benefit women who are experiencing menopause, they will be beneficial to everyone. So some of the tips in the Government Equalities Office report on menopause in the workplace talk about access to a window, being able to have access to clean drinking water, being able to step outside when you need a break if you do experience a hot flush, etc. I'm just picking out a few points there. Now, this is good practice for everyone. So how can things be made more flexible and adaptable? Can people dial into meetings or video call if they're not able to be there in person or work at a different site? In the age of technology, it does astound me how it's very rare that A, people can do this and B, how seldom the technology works or works effectively. But surely this should be quite straightforward and easy. The second thing is maybe you have your policies and procedures. Maybe your organisation is the best, but are they fit for purpose? Have you tested them out? Have you sought feedback? And also, are they applied consistently across an organisation? Now, staff networks are partners to any organisation and can provide this constructive challenge and give you information about how your policies may or may not be working. Collectively, staff networks maintain a bird's eye view to ensure a well-rounded approach is taken. But how are staff made aware of opportunities to join networks, in particularly women's networks? Because what I find is that uh, women's networks in big companies consist of the senior or upper middle class women. There doesn't really seem to be a voice from women in different parts of a business, estates, facilities, jobs where they may not have access to computers all the time. So is there representation? And if not, how could there be representation in your women's network? Encourage managers to give their team members time away from their desks or their workplaces to participate in organisation-wide initiatives. And this is so important because if we think about the blind spots, we're not going to be opening up and seeing our blind spots if it's the same people at the table every single time. Review staff survey results to discover pockets of disengagement. As I mentioned, technicians, security and estate staff will not be at their desk all day and are less likely to respond to email campaigns. How can you ensure everyone has access to input and share their ideas for improvement? And yes, we may live in a digital world, but there is always a need for there to be alternatives, such as paper-based questionnaires, or could they talk to someone and the answers be recorded somehow? And is your digital comms accessible with screen readers, assistive software, drag and dictate, etc.? Make sure it's user tested before anything goes live so that everyone can answer and access your consultations. Arrange focus or action inquiry groups to establish what will work and get staff to participate and engage. And again, action inquiry or focus groups should include BSL interpreters if someone uses British Sign Language, support workers if they need one. 
And do note that managers and their team leaders, once the reports have been written up, will need to respond to the results and suggestions. Otherwise, there's really no point in having them because people feel like they've been asked to take time out of their day to day and their recommendations are still not heard. Create opportunities for staff from all areas of an organisation to connect, talk and understand each other. And I think this can really be the most powerful thing. Effective ways to do this are through work shadowing or reverse mentoring. I'm not really a big fan of the term reverse mentoring, which is essentially when a junior team member or someone more junior enters into a professional friendship mentoring someone who is more senior and the senior person gets to spend a day or however long you want the mentoring program to run for in this individual's shoes. And they may exchange skills, knowledge and understanding. But I have, even though I'm not keen on the term, um, and you can call it whatever you like, I have seen shifts in this in the way staff view each other after an initiative like reverse mentoring, both at an individual team and thirdly, at an organisational level. And I wouldn't say that I've seen an organisation totally solve this. So the each for equal to completely blitz through and make sure that there is absolute gender parity. But there are things you can do. And I do think looking at the gender pay gap and deciding to equalise it is absolutely one of those things. And I know some people kick back and say, well, it's not that easy to do. But I personally think it is. But I do know organisations where an each for equal approach is used and it results in less sick leave, increased retention, less conflict due to open communication, therefore fewer grievances, fewer harassment claims and valuing staff through tangible ways of closing the gender pay gap and taking on that staff feedback for an improved culture. In summary, look at your current provisions and policies and decide if they're fit for purpose. Get some critical feedback from your women's network and make sure they are a representative group of staff around the table to reduce the chances of groupthink and broaden the horizon for all women. How will you get other women at the table? What is your outreach, encouragement and action strategy? How will you make sure managers let their staff take part in these vital change programmes? And make sure the feedback you received is acted upon and fed back to the women who gave it to you in an accessible and multimedia way. I really hope you found this episode useful. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about Each for Equal. And as I say, this is absolutely not a women's issue. This is an issue for everyone, male, female and non-binary. So I've included some resources to help you in your next steps in taking action. The first one is the International Women's Day Each for Equal webpage, um, more about the theme and resources. The second one is the Rise and Rise of Women's Employment from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. I've also included the link to check out gender pay gaps in organisations over 250 people and that's a UK government website. There's a great report by Unison, the Women's Mental Health Issues at Work and I've included a link to that. I've also included a link to my blog from 2018, International Women's Day, One Size Does Not Fit All. And don't forget to post hashtag IWD2020 message on social media with your hands in the equal pose for a strong call to action for others to support, hashtag each for equal. And finally, don't forget you don't have to go it alone and spin plates on your own. Find out more about my coaching packages and how I can help you on my website. And why not access my ebook? for free the mentally healthy leading manager at the web link all i'll need is an email address and then you'll receive the ebook with tools checklists and information so i wish you a very happy international women's month and year ahead and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode thanks for listening to the diverse minds podcast don't forget to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you access your podcast from 
You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.